Hail brothers, this is Didact, and welcome back to the Didactic Mind podcast. This is episode 109, Multipolar Mapping. And I am, of course, your very heavy, very humble servant, uh, warrior servant, technically, the Didact. And this is uh, Palm Sunday, so a very, very peaceful and restful Palm Sunday to everyone for whom it is still Sunday. I know I've got a few listeners down in the uh, uh, upside down bit of the world, so basically Australia, New Zealand, that, that sort of area, uh, and they're a bunch of hours ahead, so for them it's already Monday something or the other, and um, several listeners as well in, um, of all places, I think, uh, the Philippines, and one or two in Thailand, and a couple in Indonesia, from time to time, and one perhaps in Japan on occasion. Uh, the, the podcast really does have a global reach. I can see the traffic stats, and it is astonishing. I mean, the bulk of my listenership, of course, comes primarily from the US, the UK, and Europe, the Western world, but uh, it really is a global podcast, which tells me that these ideas, these truths, are getting out to a wider audience, which is very heartening to see. And I wanted to talk about a number of different things today, um, kind of mixing together some of the observations from what I'm seeing unfolding before us with what we have seen in the past and tying it into some of the spiritual and uh, how, how does one put it? Well, really, the, the spiritual forces at work, the spiritual warfare at work on each and every one of us. Uh, before I go on, as always, a shout out to some of the uh, products that help drive this podcast. Uh, if you haven't already gotten yourself a VPN connection, make sure you take a look at the links down below in the, uh, in the description box. You can get a great deal on Surfshark for like 80% off for a two-year deal uh, for the VPN. It's an outstanding VPN. I'd say it's one of the top three in the market right now. Uh, it's right up there with NordVPN and that, uh, whatever it is, I think it's ExpressVPN, which is actually quite expensive. But NordVPN, Surfshark, and one other have all passed uh, no-log audit tests. Now, admittedly, those no-log audit tests were done by Deloitte. How far do you want to trust them? That's up to you. But as far as I'm concerned, I do believe NordVPN when they say they have a no-logs policy. I also believe Surfshark when they say the same thing. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, these are the, the best VPNs on the market. Surfshark uh, will get you everything you need all in one convenient package for unlimited devices. And Atlas VPN is actually a kind of stripped-down uh, bare-bones version of the stuff that NordVPN offers at a much lower price from the same exact same company, actually. So be sure to check them both out, and uh, if you need personal data uh, protection of any kind, there's Incogni, which is a very useful add-on from the same people who do Surfshark. And of course, if you're like me and you're old-fashioned and you believe in keeping some things off the cloud, which I definitely do, there is a um, SanDisk one terabyte portable drive, uh, flash drive, which I found very useful. I back up all my files to this one to constantly plugged in. It contains my movie library, my videos, and my backups from my Linux computer. And it's big enough to function as a separate drive 
for my gaming library, for my Steam gaming library on my Windows partition. Uh, honestly, if it were up to me, I'd just delete Windows entirely, but I can't do that, sadly. Anyway, um, I wanted to talk about multipolarity today and what is unfolding before our very eyes. Now, while the Banderistan War has moved quite slowly over the past couple of weeks, um, as anyone who keeps up with my Telegram channel will know, it's actually been quite tedious to try to make any kinds of updates about what's happening in Ukraine uh, because it's just more of the same stuff. I mean, the Russians advance in Bakhmut, the, the Russians advance in Avdiivka, the rest of the front is basically static. And there's only so many times you can repeat that, I mean, basically about three, before it gets redundant and tiresome. But that's just the tactical situation on the ground. What about the global geostrategic situation? And that's where things have been moving at an awfully quick pace over the last couple of weeks. The last week or so in particular is one of those weeks in which years take place, years of change in a single week. Why do I say that? Because you can now see, based on some of the data and some of the statistics, where the world is going. Let's start with the Western world. And I want to start with the US in particular. There is a metric that those of us who have exposure to finance know and understand quite well. And I talked about it in one of my previous posts, not on a related subject, but sort of in the process of kind of making everybody's Fridays a little bit better. Um, it's called the tens to spread or the twos ten spread, however you want to refer to it. I, I've always heard it referred to as uh, the tens twos, um, but it is a straightforward swap spread between the 10 year rate and the two year rate. Uh, it's quite literally 10 year rate minus two year rate. That's all it is. And you can look at it as a constant maturity swap or a constant maturity treasury spread. Normally we look at it in finance as a constant maturity swap spread. And by the way, if you know anything about valuing constant maturity swap trades, uh, very, very, very difficult. Uh, lots of technical details involved. I won't even begin to go into them. But pricing a CMS trade is, is especially a CMS spread option, is like, I mean, there's a reason why people like me went to school to study how to value these things back in the sort of mid to late 2000s and uh, even even now we still do it. Um, the, the people who come out with these degrees are very, very small. But anyway, <clears throat> if you look at it in terms of constant maturity treasury spreads, what you're basically saying is instead of looking at treasuries of a specific date, you just look at treasuries of a, of a constant maturity, so, you know, the 10-year rate and the two-year rate. And you take the spread between the two and you use that as an economic indicator. Now, the tens to spread is an excellent indication of market expectations about the direction of future rates, meaning future Federal Reserve policy. And when the tens to spread inverts, which is to say it goes negative, that is an outstanding indication that the 10-year rate in future will be lower than the two-year rate, according to market expectations. I mean, that's literally what it means. 
Why is that significant? Because that means the market is pricing in a big drop in rates. Now, if, you're, if you just think about it for a moment, if you were to lend out money for two years versus you were to lend it out for 10 years, you would by definition charge a higher rate for lending out money for 10 years than you would for two years because of the way the time value of money works. There is, of course, greater risk, greater uncertainty, greater probability of default over a 10-year time horizon versus a two-year time horizon. So by definition, you charge a higher rate. There is a holding cost of that money, right? So all you're doing is uh, ensuring that the holding cost is dealt with in having that 10-year rate. Uh, now, if the 10-year rate goes down in the yield curve, it literally means the finance types, the finance wonks, are all expecting the Federal Reserve to cut rates hard in the future. And it could be a year, it could be two years from now, but over time, the 10-year rate will go down because the yield curve will flatten out. The, the, um, the, this comes down to the concept of forward rates, which, again, I won't go into. Um, and essentially, you're you're pricing in a big drop in rates. What does that mean for the average consumer? It means, unfortunately, a big recession is almost certainly on the way. Because the only time the Federal Reserve would ease rates to that extent is when they really desperately need to kickstart the economy out of a very, very slow patch. So what you will typically find is that when people see this happen, they start panicking. And if you go back in time and you look at Federal Reserve data of the 10-year, the 10s to spread, the 10s to spread is actually a very good predictor of not just uh, when a recession will happen, but how long it will be and how bad it will be. This data goes back to the 1980s, I believe. And if you go back in time and look at the data, the relationship between the tends to spread and the duration and severity of recessions really kicks in starting in about the, 1990s, the early 1990s, right around the time of the Gulf War. So what happens when the tends to spread goes back above the zero line? That's when the recession starts, typically. And again, there are very good, straightforward economic reasons for this. When the yield curve starts to flatten out, that means that the Federal Reserve is pumping uh, the money into the economy quickly. So the, the short end of the yield curve starts to compress. And that's happening because the Fed is essentially desperately trying to lower rates by lowering short-term lending rates and is trying to stimulate the economy through monetary stimulus by injecting lots of liquidity into the system. When that happens, it's almost always too late. The recession has already started. The Fed is uh, trying to hold the floodwaters back. And here's the thing. Central banks around the world are notoriously bad. Actually, they're completely useless at preventing actual recessions. They, they, they're not good at it. They always cotton on to the problem way too late. And in the process of trying to fix the problem that they themselves create, they end up deranging the money supply to set up the next big recession. Happens every single time like clockwork. Uh, the, the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, is, I haven't read it, 
So on my list of books to get to, uh, I really, really need to get around to it. And it describes beautifully, apparently, exactly how the Federal Reserve was created. And if you look at the way it was created, it's a profoundly evil organization, um, intentionally structured that way. I mean, essentially, it is a bank, it is a private institution where the shareholders are themselves, the big banks. So when you look at financial crises and you wonder why the hell isn't anyone from the banking industry going to jail, that's why, because all the banks are shareholders of the Federal Reserve. So anyway, the point is that if you look at the tens to spread right now, it's in seriously negative territory. It hasn't been this bad since, I think, the 1980s, if you go back and look at it. And this bad since basically the recession just before 1981 to 83, which was very sharp and very severe. And it took years to get out of. The recession this time is going to be much, much, much worse because the size of the monetary bubble that the Fed has created is much larger. So that tells you that on the US side alone, things are going to get really desperate. And you're seeing the signs of stress and strain throughout the entire Western monetary system. In the United Kingdom, the housing market right now is collapsing. Nobody wants to talk about it, but it's true. Um, basically, UK home prices, uh, this is from the FT, UK home prices fell more than expected in March. And the Financial Times, or Financial Slimes, I should say, uh, is a hopeless rag of a, of a paper, uh, has essentially admitted that a debt-based housing market in the UK is now imploding, without saying as much, which tells you that things are getting really bad in the UK too. For anybody who lives in the UK, you already know it. You know your government is completely powerless to stop the problem, and nobody has a solution. Um, and the same is true in the US. I mean, it's like, what, the Republicans are going to solve things? You're going to vote your way out of this? No, don't be stupid. It's not going to happen. But more fundamental than all of these things, as bad as these things individually are, there is a broader change at play in the world. The whole world has now recognized the danger of the U.S. dollar. I mean, the Biden president, the fake administration, it's not a real presidency, there's no doubt in my mind, the Biden administration cheated its way into the White House. The Biden administration has done more damage to the U.S. dollar and its standing as the world's reserve currency in two years than all of Biden's predecessors did all the way since Nixon decoupled the United States from the gold standard and destroyed the Bretton Woods system. That's how severe the damage is. You're seeing now a number of countries essentially agreeing to settle trades in bilateral currencies rather than relying on US dollar payment systems and payment rails. Indonesia has, uh, the Indonesian president has basically told his people, we should move away from Visa and MasterCard, and they should. Indeed, countries around the world are realizing they need to create their own national payment systems. Now, I happen to know a little something about these systems because of my work and, and past experience. Uh, I know that uh, these payment rails operate essentially as open, open loop networks. Uh, Visa, MasterCard, and Amex, which is actually a closed loop network, where they see all sides of the transaction. They see both the merchants and the um, individual side. 
whereas with Visa and MasterCard, they only see really the um, the acquirers and the uh, the customer side. I mean, not even that much to to some extent. So they only see one side of the transaction. So these card payment networks operate a number of very, very powerful payment rails in the background. And I know, because again, past work, that when they're charging you, let's say 0.1% or 0.18% on every transaction, that they're actually charging it to the issuer of the card, not to you directly, but um, the merchant gets that charge, the merchant then passes that on to the customer and so on and so forth. Um, but the merchant has to pay that amount to Visa or MasterCard. They actually run their network at the cost of about five basis points. Uh, so, you know, they make a substantial profit off of these transactions. That's going to go away because if they're operating, if each country is operating a national payment system, kind of like uh, the Mir payment system in Russia, which was kind of the pioneer of this sort of stuff, then Mir can afford to undercut Visa and MasterCard and act as the go-between. So in Russia, what happened after the sanctions of 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, which has always been Russian territory, and there's no way you can argue otherwise, because there is no treaty that says Crimea was ever part of Ukraine, never happened. Um, the Russians created the Mir system, which essentially acts as a layer between the consumer and Visa and MasterCard and Amex. So in Russia, when you run a transaction, it actually settles on the Mir network. And then Visa, MasterCard, what they do is they collect all those transactions in one big lump sum every, I think, month end. And that's when they get their cut of the, the proceedings. So moving away from Visa, MasterCard, and Amex was actually one of the smartest things the Russians have ever done. They proved that they could nullify the American financial weapons of mass destruction by doing so. And no longer could the West dictate what other people could do with their own payments and their own currencies. It was a tremendously clever long-term move. The Chinese have well, the Chinese don't have the same problem because union pay is so dominant in their country. Uh, if you look at the user base for union pay and you compare it with Visa and MasterCard, I mean, it's like, it's nowhere even, union pay just dwarfs everybody else. But up until fairly recently, it was mostly exclusive to China. And the reason it's grown so dominant is because it's a wholesale um, payment system rather than a retail payment system. I won't go into any of those details, but just essentially, union pay started as a way of helping businesses pay each other, and then it eventually grew into something for individuals. Uh, Visa MasterCard started in a different way. So the Chinese don't have the same structure as the Russians do, but they don't have the same problems either. They didn't have the same level of exposure to the Western financial system. But now the rest of the world is looking at the US dollar, and they're realizing they cannot trust America to be a fair and honest broker of financial transactions. Think about what it takes to maintain a reserve currency. It doesn't actually take that much. All you have to do is essentially let people transact in your currency 
without dicking around with those transactions. Essentially, you just need to let them use your currency and leave them alone. And that's it. The moment you start playing games with people's transactions, with their money, with their livelihoods, by sanctioning them and by seizing their assets, by freezing and then seizing their assets in denominated in your currency, the moment you try to implement a central bank digital currency on a blockchain that the federal government can then track and monitor and shut down and control in every aspect of its use, that's when people start getting really annoyed and they start looking for alternatives. And that's when a reserve currency loses its reserve status. Now, a lot of conservatives, so-called conservatives in the United States, have made a lot of song and dance about how the United States is losing its status as the world's reserve currency. I don't see that happening. I don't see a viable competitor to the US dollar emerging. The Chinese Yuan cannot do it, despite all the blustering and um, kind of freakouts of the establishment in the United States. Can't be done. Why? Because China has capital controls on its currency. One of the fundamental requirements for a reserve currency is that your currency has to be freely floating. If you do not allow your currency to float in the international market, you have essentially surrendered um, kind of control over your monetary policy. And you're tied to the whims of a particular currency peg. The Chinese yuan lives as a pegged currency. The, the, the central bank, the, the Bank of China, wants it to operate within a range, a fairly narrow band against the US dollar. If they get rid of that and let the currency float, then it will very rapidly appreciate to the point where Chinese exports are no longer competitive. Right now, the Chinese have some control over their monetary policy. Uh, but if they were to let their currency float completely, they would lose that control while gaining control elsewhere. Uh, that would essentially make them lose a particular tool that they have to control their economy. So they can no longer uh, kind of control the direction and movement of the Chinese economy. So when I say that one of the requirements of having a reserve currency is that you allow it to float freely, that means surrendering control in one important area to accomplish control in another one. And the Chinese can't do that because their, com their, their economy is export-oriented. It's all about export, mercantilist, trade-driven, export-driven growth. They don't have enough of a consumer-driven economy right now to allow their currency to float freely, and they won't. So the yuan is not the alternative. It's not big enough either. There's, there just aren't enough yuan out there to act as a reserve currency. But there are enough yuan out there, and there are enough people interested in trading in yuan, in renminbi, that it can act as one of several means of exchange. Not the only one, but one of several. And that, actually, is the most likely future. Not one in which the dollar loses its status as a reserve currency and becomes irrelevant. That's not going to happen. It's not going to be replaced by something else. 
It's not going to be replaced by gold because there's not enough gold out there, physical gold, to cover the entire money supply of the world. It's not going to happen. I love gold. I think it's a phenomenal asset. I think it's a great inflation hedge. Uh, but it's more about physical ownership than it is about use in backstopping currencies. There's not enough silver out there. I think silver prices are likely to explode in the near future because of the extreme depreciation of the dollar that, that is happening right now and will happen in the future. But I think the real sort of potential lies in currencies that are backed by real physical things. So there's still paper money. Technically, there's still fiat, but they're tied to real production and real um, economic development which is something the United States cannot claim anymore. So what will the future look like? Well, it will be multipolar. It will be multi-currency as well. The Chinese Yuan will play a substantial role in settling currency, uh, well, um, transactions around the world. And there will be a digital Yuan. I mean, it's already there. It actually exists in China right now. They are rolling out a retail CBDC in cooperation with uh, state-run banks and they've already rolled it out to some parts of China. They're going to continue to roll it out in the future to cover the entire country because China actually has a very weak retail banking system. Its, um, it's banking system is actually largely through state-run banks. So the CBDC that it issues will go out to kind of all of uh, the, the, the state-run banks and then will cover the entire population through union pay and through uh, WeChat, basically. The countries around the world are looking to develop digital currencies of some kind. Even Russia is looking to develop a digital ruble, but they need it for purposes of settling trades and transactions. Now, why would a digital currency help in this regard? Well, it would actually smooth out the process of settling trades substantially because you don't actually need the physical currency to move and you don't need uh, to rely on Western messaging systems. With a blockchain, you remove, you obviate the need for a messaging system completely. And instead, you just have a digital ledger that says, yes, this currency trade, this, this transaction is accurate, it's correct, it's been checked through the blockchain, it's all good. Um, therefore, you know, the, the trade just settles. So the central bank of Russia can receive, I don't know, um, Saudi Arabian rials uh, f oh, and... Emirati dinars and Chinese yuan and Indonesian rupiah and Indian rupees and whatever else in its um, in its uh, what's it called current exchange account, and that way it can very easily keep track of what's going on without being exposed to the Western financial system. And the same is going to be true of countries and trading blocks around the world. I think you're going to see. Similar trading blocks emerge in Latin America. I mean, if you look at the Brazilian real, for instance, um, real, not real. The Brazilian real is a non-deliverable currency, which I've talked about uh, on my Telegram channel. What this means is, uh, again, without going into all the technical details, the, you can't really settle BRL outside of Brazil. So they can't, because of capital controls, it can't go outside of Brazil. Um, so you have this, uh, this, this weird four-way currency market. You have the 
onshore real, the offshore real, the BRO, which is a fake, like, well, not fake, but artificial currency that's, uh, uh, it's a virtual currency. It doesn't, it, uh, it doesn't exist, but it, it's there as a facilitation mechanism. It's a synthetic currency. It, it's not backed by anything. It doesn't really exist except as a stochastic variable uh, in various calculations. Then you have the offshore dollar and you have the onshore dollar. So you have like a four-way, very complex four-way uh, stochastic problem, which you then have to simulate out to figure out the value of a forward trade. Anyway, the point is that with Brazil and the rest of the Latin American countries, you can see them forming one big economic block, the Mercosur block, which already exists actually. Uh, the African Union now, okay, I mean, I, I have very little faith in Africa, but that's just me. Uh, I don't think they can sort out arse from elbow. But if they eventually get their act together and, and figure out, you know, what to do with their own currencies, they could potentially have regional trading currencies of some kind. Um, in the Middle East, Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi back in the day were actually talking about settling oil trades in gold. And Gaddafi himself was talking about the gold dinar, uh, a literally a dinar backed completely by gold, which would be unstoppable and unseizable and unbreakable by the US. They couldn't touch it. And he wanted to settle oil trades in that currency and thereby give his country some independence. And well, look at what happened to him. He died. But we are now entering a world in which the United States' ability to control and dominate global trade through its currency is disappearing. We're also looking at a world in which the United States is collapsing in real time. Now, if you look back at the past, and this is where, you know, looking at past history is very useful, you see a similar situation back 2,000 years ago as we see today. A couple of thousand, eh, 1,500 years ago, 1,600 years ago, thereabouts, there were a number of global regional powers. And when I say global, I really mean Eurasian because, frankly, the rest of the world didn't matter at that point. You had the Western Roman Empire. You had the Eastern Byzantine Roman Empire. You had Persia. Uh, and you had, well, not a whole lot else, frankly, in terms of, um, in terms of kingdoms and empires. I mean, there was India and there was China. Okay, you know, fair enough. Okay, China was huge. Yes, fair enough. Um, but these were the kind of dominant powers of the time, and each one had its own currency. Each one, the, the currencies back then were backed by gold, and trade happened in national or imperial currencies. The same thing is going to happen today. But look at what happened to the Western Roman Empire, and you can easily draw some parallels with what's happening in the US. Life expectancy in the US is declining, which is one of the surest signs imaginable of an empire in late stage collapse. Life expectancy is going down is a sign that, um, and in the words of Rudyard Kipling, till the women bore no more children and the men lost reason and faith. And the gods of the copybook heading said, the wages of sin is death. And fantastic poem. If you haven't read it, go read uh, the gods of the copybook headings by Rudyard Kipling. I can almost 
not quite. I used to be able to almost quote a chapter and verse, but um, with a little bit of prodding and uh, reminding and you know, looking over the, the actual poem once in a while, uh, I could probably recite it from memory. But the American Empire shows all of the same signs of collapse as the Western Roman Empire did. Women refusing to bear children, the destruction of traditional family orders, a decline in life expectancy, a movement away from the cities, which have become diseased, dangerous, crime-ridden, really not nice places to be, the abandonment of tradition and religion as anchors of society, the adoption of just genuinely bizarre and barbaric cultural practices, the refusal to speak the truth about what is real and what is not, and of course the mass acceptance of barbarians into one society. Well, all of that's happening in the United States today. The U.S. is no longer recognizable as the country of the Founding Fathers. It hasn't been since, you know, basically since the 1960s. The apex of American power was essentially the mid-60s uh, with a brief resurgence, actually a substantial resurgence in the 80s, and then a decline ever since. Um, you know, it, it was hard to imagine looking at the Roman Empire in 375 AD that within a hundred years, the Roman Empire would have collapsed completely. And yet three years after that, the Emperor Valens was dead um, and you know, murdered at the hands of a barbarian Germanic horde fleeing from Attila the Hun. Well, uh, in 476 AD, the last Roman Empire uh, emperor, who was himself of Germanic origin, he was actually a part barbarian himself, stepped off the throne and handed his crown to uh, Odoacer, or however you pronounce his name, uh, who was himself previously a general in the, in the Roman legions So at the time. So you have this weird interplay of forces where history doesn't repeat, it just rhymes. And it's really rhyming quite hard right now. We're seeing the same factors at work. And we're seeing the same continuation that will come out of what is left of the Western Empire. Europe is doomed. I mean, Europe has, has kneecapped itself. It actually has gone beyond kneecapping itself. It's basically shot itself in both feet, driven screwdrivers into its kneecaps, um, used a shotgun at close range on its lungs, and is just about to pull the trigger on it to blow its own brains out. Uh, that's how bad Europe has gotten with its adoption of crazy green energy policies, its uh, just craven acceptance of the American destruction of Nord Stream, and its bonkers refusal to take cheap energy from Russia. Everyone else is doing quite well, actually. China and Russia have their problems, no question. China has huge problems. Don't, don't get me wrong, I, I don't like the Chinese system. I don't like the way they do things. I would never want to live in China. I would never want to live under that system. But I think we, people who live in the West, need to be a bit less judgmental and a bit less, um, shall we say, 
uh, overblown in their rhetoric about China. And I'm guilty of it myself. I mean, I have often called the Chinese uh, Communist Party that, the CCP. It's not. It's the CPC, the Communist Party of China. And as I've pointed out repeatedly, the Communist Party of China is not actually properly a communist organization. That's the wrong way to look at it. Once you understand that China is essentially a fascist system, without all the emotional baggage and loading that comes with that term, you will understand what modern China is. It's not a communist country, and hasn't been for a very long time. It's actually a fascist country, in the sense that the state owns all property and all means of production, but there is plenty of room, actually, for free enterprise, for, um, for business. I mean, free, quote-unquote, enterprise. But it's, it's basically a fascist system, and it works. The Chinese people are themselves, by and large, happy with it. I'm not saying it's perfect, because it's not. There are a lot of things wrong with it. Uh, the Chinese have a demographic time bomb, which they refuse to do anything about. They have a major shortage of arable land, which is why they've turned to the Russians for food and oil, and are busy securing their supply lines. They have a major water problem, which they're fixing with giant engineering works, which I, you know, I can't quite say I see the point of that. Um, and they also have uh, the fourth problem, which I outlined somewhere else in one of my blog posts. You, you can go look it up on the site. Uh, but basically, the, the, there are four major issues. Um, oh, yeah, real estate. There's, uh, there's, there's a, of course, a giant real estate bubble, which is completely debt-fueled. And that comes back to what I pointed out earlier, which is the Chinese refusal to let their exchange rate float. So their interest rates are actually artificially suppressed from what they should be. Uh, if they were correct in their rate setting, the Chinese renminbi would have appreciated quite sharply. The interest rate would be substantially higher and a lot of this bubble nonsense that they've blown up themselves would go away, but, you know, be that as it may. If you look at China and, and you look at what China is, it is essentially, all, like, the coastal regions of China are extremely densely populated, extremely heavily urbanized, and uh, extremely, kind of, resource-hungry. If you look farther to the west, there's really not much there. I mean, there, there are some cities, some ancient cities, uh, which have been around for a very long time, but really, China is a coastal, urbanized population. And that means China's historical dependencies have always been on maritime trade with their Asian neighbors. Now, what is it that's causing China problems with their supplies, because China actually, relative to its size, does not have that much by way of natural resources, particularly oil uh, and natural gas. It has lots of coal, it has lots of timber, it has some amount of water, but not enough, um, and it definitely doesn't have enough arable land. So where does it get all the other stuff from, the, the, the raw materials that it needs? Well, it used to get a lot of its raw materials from Australia. But to get those raw materials, they would have to traverse the sea and go all the way to China directly. What's in the way of that? The U.S. Navy. 
which means the Navy can shut down China's trade pretty much at will. And the Chinese, despite the enormous size of their military, don't have the means to stop the U.S. Navy. If you look at the U.S. Navy, where does its power really come from? It comes from its carrier battle groups and submarines. The carrier battle groups are obsolete at this point. Let's just say that outright. The advent of um, the Tsirkon, the air-breathing, scramjet-powered missile, which can hit moving targets and at hypersonic speeds and impacts it like Mach 14 um, by the Russians, the advent of that missile is a complete game-changer in the world of surface warfare. It means that even a missile boat armed with sort of cut-down versions of the Kinja, uh, sorry, the Tsirkon can pose a serious threat to a carrier battle group. A single large frigate like Admiral Goshkov can go out there and take on an entire carrier battle group at a range the, sea, the, the, the carrier group cannot engage at over 2,000 kilometers away. The carrier battle group cannot get out there in time to sink the Goshkov before it sinks every single ship in that carrier battle group. So on the surface realm, the United States Navy is largely but not completely obsolete. The Navy does have the ability to penetrate uh, into China's um, coastal defenses using its JASMS missiles. I'm not making any of this up. This is, if you, if you want the details, go look at um, Andrei Martianov's videos. Uh, he did a video on the JASMS uh, a while back, a few days ago. He's vastly more qualified to speak about this stuff than I am because he studied as a naval warfare officer in the Soviet Navy uh, in Baku, in Azerbaijan. And he actually has a degree in this stuff. He actually, his entire field of study was in how to sink the U.S. Navy, literally. And as he points out, if you put the JASMS missile on an FA-18 uh, and you send it out from a carrier group, it has a combined range of about 2,500 kilometers, which is more than the Chinese DH-17 hypersonic missile, which uh, it's a, an aeroballistic missile. So, you know, goes straight up and comes, well, eventually goes up in its terminal phase and then comes straight down onto the most vulnerable part of the carrier, which is the flat deck. So, um, the Chinese are more than capable of defending their coastline against the surface fleet, but with substantial gaps. I mean, they're going to get hit. And they're certainly not able to project power out to sea the way the U.S. nuclear navy can. Uh, the Chinese do not have nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. The Chinese also don't have nuclear-powered submarines. They really rely very heavily on older diesel-electric models. They don't have a well-balanced navy. They really don't. They have lots of hulls, they have lots of numbers, but they don't have actually a well-balanced, well-thought-out properly conceived and structured Navy. There are only two countries on Earth that have truly well-balanced naval forces. One is the United States, which has a superb, genuinely superb, submarine fleet. The Los Angeles class, Ohio class, and now Virginia class and future Columbia class, um, Los Angeles and Virginia attack submarines, and Ohio and eventually Columbia missile submarines are outstanding. They are really genuinely great pieces of technology. They're ridiculously expensive for what they do, but they are outstanding pieces of technology. The Russians also have a much 
more balanced submarine fleet. They have an outstanding fleet and it's much better balanced than the American fleet is. Because the Russians have invested very heavily in ultra-silent diesel electrics, like upgraded Kilo-class submarines. They have invested heavily in Yasin-class um, attack submarines and various other attack hulls that they're going to be using. And they've invested very heavily in Barrier-class uh, missile submarines. If you actually look at their attack submarines, unlike the American versions, which really only carry Tomahawks, the Russian equivalents carry Kaliber, uh, Onyx, and Sirkon. In, in, I mean, that's the, the, the planned future state. They will carry multiple missile types in one boat. And they're so quiet that they can basically wander off the east coast of the United States and be in a position to launch with warheads you know, tipped with nukes impacting on the continental United States in a eh, couple of minutes. And that's it. You've got like two minutes warning and then everybody's dead. That's essentially what it looks like. Um, and that's before we get to the whole uh, Belgorod and the uh, Poseidon autonomous nuclear torpedo, which uh, has a liquid metal uh, reactor and essentially is a doomsday weapon that you could park it off the coast of the United Kingdom, detonate it, and uh, a wall of water would just, a wall of radioactive water would just like wash away the entirety of the UK, most of it, which is terrifying if you think about it. But um, this is the reality of the Russian Navy. They have things the United States Navy can't even dream of, but the Chinese Navy doesn't have these things. So China's looking at its geopolitical situation and it's saying to itself, well, all of my supply lines are essentially right now uh, in danger from the United States Navy. All of my financial supply lines are in danger from the US financial system. So what do we do? Well, that's where the One Belt, One Road initiative comes in. And that's where the Chinese are busy building this huge infrastructure project to bring resources from all over the Eurasian landmass. It's actually the Eurasian African landmass because the Chinese are looking to extend One Belt, One Road all the way into Africa. At present, their colonies in Africa, which they've established, will ship raw materials um, across the Gulf of Arabia, it, through the Indian Ocean and back to China through the Straits of Malacca and so on and so forth. Again, quite dangerous because the US Navy can intercept it cause lots of problems. But if the Chinese have high-speed rail and road links over land, which is what the One Belt, One Road thing is all about, the US can't touch those things because the US is not a land power. It's not a military power on land. It doesn't have the force projection necessary. So the Chinese are playing the long game, as is the rest of Eurasia. The rest of the Eurasian African landmass can see all of this and can understand that trade with China benefits everybody. I need to dispel this notion that China wants to replace the United States. That is simply not true. Again, I don't like China. I don't like the way they do things in China. But let's be honest about who and what the Chinese are. They are not looking to replace the United States. They are not interested in dictating to other countries 
how to live and how many genders there are and whether your kids can call themselves trans and whether you should insist on recognizing LGBTQ WTF as this shit nonsense as part of your government policy. They're not interested in telling people that they have to carry around little red books. They're not interested in telling people that they have to be good little communists. They're only interested in trade and commerce. That's it. That, beyond that, they don't care. They're happy to do trade with Islamic nations, just as they're happy to do trade with Hindu nations, just as they're happy to do trade with Christian nations. It doesn't matter to them. They only want the resources. And they only want to trade at advantageous terms to them. That's why they're offering loans at half the rates that the IMF and World Bank would to third world countries. And they're doing quite well off of those loans. Both parties benefit. Now, you could say, well, the Chinese are, you know, exercising debt trap diplomacy. Well, yeah, so? <laughs> Not like the West didn't do it. Come on. They learned from the best. So why are you surprised that the Chinese are doing the same thing the West did back in the day? It's not a big deal. Um, you could argue that the Chinese have rapacious designs on African resources, which is true. They do. Okay, so what? Like, what's new about that? It's not like the West didn't do the same thing. And actually, the African nations, as much as they dislike the Chinese, dislike the West even more. Because, at least for the Chinese, they aren't running around trying to proselytize to everyone, saying, you must convert to our state-run religion, you must worship this way, you must act that way, you must do these things to be part of the club. No, no, they're not doing that. They're basically saying, we are here for your resources, we will do trade with you. If you want to trade, everybody benefits. If you don't want to trade, that's fine. We'll go to the next people who do want to trade. That's it. That's what they care about. So this notion that China wants to supplant America economically, culturally, militarily, not only holds no water, um, both in terms of Chinese actions and Chinese capabilities, it, it is paranoia of the worst kind. The United States has fundamental issues that it needs to solve itself. This multipolar mapping that we're seeing emerging around the world is inexorable. It's inevitable. It will happen whether the United States wants it or not. And the sad thing is, or the good thing, depending on your point of view, is that none of this really needed to happen. The United States could have maintained its position as rather than, you know, Globocop or a dictatorial power, it could have done this simply by being an honest broker, by facilitating trade and commerce using the dollar as a backbone. It could have allowed the rest of the world to live in peace and develop in peace according to individual models and modes of development, but it refused to do that. The U.S. has gone and poked its giant nose into every country's business and has done so in a way that has left many of these countries economically shattered and devastated. It's gone in and raped and pillaged and plundered around the world, and it's given very little back. We're going to go into Afghanistan and make it a beacon of democracy and freedom and look at it today, ruled by the Taliban again. And ironically, I mean, Afghanistan has a sort of fragile, kind of stable order for the first time in like 50 years because of the Taliban. 
Again, not saying I like the Taliban, I can't stand them. But that's what America wrought. 20 years of waste and destruction, only to result in the same people being back in power and more powerful than ever. Like, well done guys, real well done, good job. You look at Iraq, 20 years of a pointless, wasteful war, supposedly to create a beacon of democracy and Arab enlightenment in the sands of the Middle East, and look what happens. Iraq can't stand on its own two feet. It owes enormous debts of oil and natural gas to Iran, of all countries. You look at Syria. The U.S. has spent, what, almost 10 years trying to, what, probably more than 10 years actually by now, trying to depose uh, Bashar al-Assad. Complete waste of time and money, and the United States is illegally occupying northern Syria and pumping out uh, millions of dollars of Syrian oil, stealing it, basically, every single day. Meanwhile, Assad has moved closer to the Arab world, that he's being rehabilitated in the Arab world. All the Arab nations are looking to make friends with him. He's got a rock-solid relationship with Russia, who have now a, an airbase at uh, Khmeimim, and I think a naval port uh, at Altanf. Um, I could be wrong about that. Altanf might be an American base. Don't quote me on that. But I know the, um, the Russians are looking to open a naval base in Syria, and they're looking to open up another naval base in uh, Sudan. Which means the Russians finally get the warm water ports they've always wanted. So, how has American policy helped anywhere? The reality of empire, which is a lesson that other great powers have learned over the last 200 years or so, is that empire is incredibly expensive for the country that engages in empire building. If you look at um, the United Kingdom, if you look at Britain, I saw a stat floating around somewhere which said that you know the, the Brits had extracted something like $47 trillion out of India, out of uh, the, the British Raj, during the time they occupied India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Burma, uh, and so on, and uh, Nepal, and, and so on and so forth. I have to call bullshit on that. I mean, I, it's like, seriously, you know, that's basically half the world's current GDP um, over the course of 300 years with what kind of technology? I mean, it, it, no, I don't believe that at all. I do believe that substantial amounts of Indian resources were removed from India and from the rest of the Raj countries. But I don't think it's anything close to that much. Nonetheless, what people always forget is the price that Britain paid to maintain that overseas empire. It essentially bankrupted Britain. And while Britain got a lot out of it, it actually put a lot more into those empire building exercises. The British were actually, in my opinion, one of the very few imperial powers that actually did any good while they expanded their empire. But that's, you know, there's a discussion for another time. The American Empire, by contrast, has largely brought ruin and destruction with it. And it is well past time for that empire to disappear. Now, the United States is going to collapse. I mean, it's, it's like, it's blindingly obvious at this point. To my mind, that is a good thing. I mean, as, as horrific and as painful as it's going to be, you know, the, the process of that collapse is unfolding before our eyes. Go back to what I talked about at the beginning of this podcast with the tens to spread. The, the coming recession, plus all of these other factors I've talked about, you know, the de-dollarization, the movement away from national currencies, 
is restoring the world to where it should be. And that's a good thing. It's, it's devolving control of the nations back to the entities and the watchers that were supposed to control these places. Rather than having one kind of all-powerful watcher uh, guarding over everything, it's now devolving back to the places where it should. And I'll talk more about this um, next Sunday, on Easter Sunday itself. Hopefully, if I have time to do a podcast, uh, as is my tradition, I, I like to do a podcast every Easter Sunday. But this really comes back to the spiritual warfare component, which I referenced at the beginning. There is a spiritual war underway, a very important one. And we're seeing the realignment of nations into much wiser, much less rapacious, much more individualistic blocks of countries that are capable of making peace between themselves. I'm not saying that we're looking at a future in which, you know, Islamic nations are capable of living coexisting peacefully with non-Islamic ones. That's never going to happen because Islam is what it is. But there is enough, there will be more of a balance of power, a balance of regional interests. Iran is not actually interested in expanding rapidly um, in terms of territory. It's a Mongo country. It's gigantic. Uh, it doesn't have the ability to expand so quickly. I mean, if you actually look at its population, it's facing a major demographic collapse right now. China is the same way. It doesn't have the population uh, fecundity to expand rapidly into an imperial situation. Neither does Russia. Neither do most of the Eurasian powers except India. And India is not interested in becoming an empire. I mean, that much is very clear. Looking at both the words and the deeds of the Indian government, as much as I can't stand the government, no matter who's running it, the one good thing about the Indian government is it's not interested in imperial ambition at all. It's interested in growing its economy. That's it. If you look at Africa, well, Africa's too disorganized and too chaotic to do much of anything. If you look at Latin America, again, same situation. Too disorganized, too chaotic to do much of anything. The only global power that really wants to expand and control and conquer is the United States. And it's reaching the end of that road. What will the U.S. look like after the collapse comes? Well, the U.S. is still very rich in natural resources. It still has a very uh, powerful base of white people in it who can help rebuild after the collapse. It probably will splinter into a number of different countries. I expect it to. But the American landmass in itself will still be an undeniably very powerful economic block. It will just be one of a great many. And that's a very good thing. Again, comes back to the whole spiritual warfare component. The drag and the heaviness that so many of us are feeling right now, myself included, and I'll talk more about this next week, is happening for a reason. And it's preparing us for what is to come. So with that in mind, I'll leave that again till next week. Thank you very much as always for listening. I hope you got something out of this. I hope it was educational. Um, Remember to like, comment, share, and subscribe, and follow the site, the podcast, and so on and so forth. Make sure you check out the links in the description box. And this has been Didactic Mind, episode 109, Multipolar Mapping. And this is Didact, Strengthen on the Brothers, signing off.